Psalm 88 for our call to worship this morning. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath, Leonoth, a mascal of Heman, the Ezrahite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darknesses or your righteous, righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O oh Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Father, we bow before you now and thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for encouraging us with the the presence of your Holy Spirit and with the, the, the power of your almighty presence. And we thank you this morning that we do have your word that, that can be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And I pray that as we, as we dig into the truth of your word today, I pray that your word would be medicine to our souls. In Jesus' name, now we continue to worship. Amen. Two and a half years ago, my brother died. I was uh, in my office about 10 minutes before our first service started. And my nephew called and gave me the word that my brother had just passed away. Uh, the last three years of his life, my brother was constantly in chronic pain. Uh, I visited him a number of times up at Duke University Medical Center, and they never did diagnose the, the cause of the pain for my brother, the cause of his suffering. Psalm 88 describes that kind of pain. Psalm 88 describes a time in the, the life of this psalmist where he was experiencing not just a dark night of the soul, but a dark day and night of the body. It was never ceasing, never ending. We'll see as we look into the, the body of this psalm. No one is exempt from pain and suffering. Someone once said that suffering is a required course in the school of faith. Many of the most famous preachers and pastors in history, past and present, 
suffered and are suffering great pain. For example, Martin Luther, we talked about last week, Martin Luther personally struggled with chronic pain, illness, and suffering. C.S. Lewis said this, Pain removes the veil. It plants a flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis said, Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Rick Warren is a contemporary pastor out at Saddleback in California. He wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life, which has given hope to many people. And Rick Warren said, and I quote, Your greatest ministry will most likely come out of your greatest pain. Timothy Keller is a mentor to thousands of people on social media. He's also a pastor in uh, New York and an author. He currently, right now, today, is in a life-threatening battle with pancreatic cancer. He says, and I quote, One of the main ways we move from abstract knowledge about God to a personal encounter with Him as a living reality is through the furnace of affliction. So again, no one is exempt from pain and suffering. Suffering is part of the Christian's faith walk. It's an encounter with reality. And I want want to ask you to join me today in, in doing something. I want to ask you to let the guard down today. I want to ask you to be real, to be open to what God might have to say to you about a reality in life that all of us have faced or may be facing today or for sure one day will face. Can, can we agree with that? Can we agree just to let the guards down and, and be real? So what do you do when you can't shake The feeling of pain and suffering. Well, the psalmist encourages us to cry out to God. Cry out to God. And that's what we see in Psalm 88. Do you have your Bible open? We're just going to walk through this psalm. And we're going to find three ways that we can cry out to God. Three times when we need to cry out to God. First of all, in verses 1 through 9 of Psalm 88... Cry out to God when facing depression. Cry out to God when facing depression. Look at verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Do, Do you feel the urgency in the life of the psalmist here? It's almost like he's begging God. God, listen to me. I'm hurting. I'm depressed. I think probably some of you can identify with where the psalmist is in this particular point in his life. He is, he is lamentating, lamenting, in other words, and crying out to, from the depths of his being, from the depths of his soul, from spending most of his life sick and in severe pain. He has no end in sight. He has nowhere else to turn. And again, may I just be real with us here. 
that's, that's really not a bad place to be. When the only place we have to turn is looking up to God and, and crying out to God. His, his cry to God for help was unceasing. It was a desperate cry for God to, to come to His rescue. In verse 1, he says, I cry out day and night before you. In verse 9, he says, every day I call upon you, O Lord. In verse 13, O Lord, in the morning my prayer comes before you. And so this faith and trust that the psalmist had in God was one that carried him to a position where every single waking moment he had, all he knew to do was Cry out to God for help. Because honestly, that was his only source of hope in the struggle that he was having with pain and with suffering with no end in sight. But the more he prayed, the more desperate he became. The more he prayed, the more he felt the weight of this dark curtain that had fallen down upon his life and it seemed like he couldn't get out from under that curtain have you ever been there have you ever felt that kind of agony that kind of torture in verse 3 he says for my soul is full of trouble and my life draws near to Sheol. Now, when he says near to Sheol, that, that is a, a Hebrew expression for near to death. In other words, he was, he was feeling like he literally had one, one foot in the grave. Death was at his door. In verse 4, he says, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. He felt desperate. He felt weak. He felt like he had no way in the world of finding help, no way of helping himself. And he felt utterly forsaken and forgotten by God. That's a dark place to be. When you're just totally cut off from every source of life. But that's where he was. And remember what he was doing. He was crying out to God. He was sharing with God the deep feelings of his soul. In verse 6... He turns his anger toward God. He says, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of the dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. So he felt that that God was disciplining him for something, and he was depressed over that. He felt that his life had truly been afflicted by God. And then he felt there was no way out. Nowhere to turn. No way out whatsoever. In verse 8 he continues, You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, and spread out my hands to you. 
And so the psalmist felt like not only had he been deserted by God, but he, he felt like he had been deserted by all of his friends. He had nowhere to turn. And God had restricted his life. So consequently, his life was filled with sadness and sorrow. Psychologists tell us that there, there are four basic emotions that every person has the capacity, has the potential to, to feel every day. Those four emotions are happiness, sadness, fear, and anger. Happiness, sadness, fear, and anger. Now, I think you'll agree with me that, that, that people don't like to be around unhappy people. And that just makes things worse. People don't like to be sad or sorrowful. So fear and anger just kind of flow from and out of unhappy, sad people. And that was the state of the psalmist here. And there was no escape, no rescue. And he expressed his dilemma to God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers in my estimation of the 19th century. Uh, he has thousands of sermons. You can go online, you can Google, you can pull up thousands of sermons, literally, from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Most of his life he suffered from severe depression, chronic depression. So why was Spurgeon depressed? Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a list of reasons why he gave in his own sermons about why he felt depressed most of his life. And I think every single one of us will be able to identify with some of these symptoms that he had. Let me just give you a list of them. First of all, he suffered from a chemical imbalance. In other words, he, he claimed that from his birth, from his very birth, he had a feeling of depression. Now, let me just stop there for a minute. Because Spurgeon lived in a time where there was no medical help for the kind of depression that he felt, a clinical depression. Today we have medication to help people with clinical depression. And if, if, if you're one of those people who suffers with clinical depression, don't apologize about taking medication for that. That's a good thing. Um, if you're a diabetic and you take medication for diabetes, that's a good thing. That keeps you alive. That keeps you flowing. If you're clinically depressed, it's a good thing to use the medication that doctors today can provide for helping to overcome that. Spurgeon suffered from a chemical imbalance. He also suffered from physical pain, a burning kidney, gout, rheumatism, neuritis. I mean, this guy was wrecked and racked with physical pain. He suffered from trauma and loneliness and mental exertion. He suffered from depression driven by fame. You would think, what? Depression from fame, yeah, he suffered from being in the spotlight. He didn't like being in the spotlight, and it caused him to move into times of depression. Depression was also generated by failure in his life. Sometimes the weather would change, and it would cause him to drift into depression. Depression was also driven by conviction of sin. He even claimed that sometimes he became so nervous before he preached that he would fall into depression and not even be able to go preach that sermon. This was a man, a great man, who suffered from depression. 
He said, I cannot call myself free from depression. Controversy also was a cause of depression and criticism by others. Can you imagine waking up one morning and looking on social media or looking in the newspaper and hearing a quote like this that was recorded in the Sheffield and Rotterdam Independence, April 28, 1855? Here's what it says. Charles Spurgeon is a nine days wonder, a comet that has suddenly shot across the religious atmosphere. He has gone up like a rocket and ere long will come down like a stick. Can you imagine seeing that on social media or in the newspaper about you? When he would see comments like this, it would just drive him into depression. But here's what I want us to understand about Spurgeon. And I've experienced some of these symptoms over the years as well. Spurgeon's depression did not hinder him from his ministry. In fact, it helped his ministry. Because he was able to open up his life to the people that he loved and that loved him. And he was able to be real. He was able to share the true feelings of depression that he had. And that sharing simply became medication to many people who needed to be encouraged, who were experiencing the same kind of symptoms that he was experiencing. So when the curtain of depression drops over your life, what do you do? Well, you have some options. You can choose just to stuff it. <laughs> you can choose to sweep it under the rug. You can choose to just make like it's not there. But I want to tell you something, that, that solves nothing. You can try to ignore it. You can try to cover it up. And again, that solves nothing. You can, you can medicate it with unhealthy habits, like going shopping or turning on the TV and watching football all the time, just zoning out of real life. You can eat comfort food. And try to medicate yourself with comfort. You can isolate. You can just shut everybody else out of your life. But none of those things are going to help. None of those things are going to lead to victory from that state that you're in. You can choose to do what Spurgeon did and what the psalmist did. And even, I want to show you an example in the life of Jesus where he literally modeled for us what to do when we come to the dark night of the soul. In Gethsemane, Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 41, Jesus lays out a perfect example for us when we feel that curtain of depression dropping down upon us. What did he do? First of all, he shared with his best friends after leaving the, the Last Supper, he took his disciples, he went to Gethsemane, he started up the hillside. He left eight of them behind, he carried three of them with him, Peter, James, and John. And he told them, he said, pray with me, pray with me while I go ahead and ahead of you and, and spend some time praying by myself. And so he cried out to God, but he also left his friends crying out to God on his behalf. Do you have a circle of friends that you can 
share your life with, when you feel that curtain drifting down upon you, that curtain of depression and despair, do you have a group of friends, a small group of friends that care enough about you? A friend is someone who walks in when everyone else walks out. And everybody needs that kind of circle. Jesus modeled that. Secondly, he went up a little further. He pleaded with God. He said, Abba, the dearest name for God. Abba, Father, Daddy. If there can be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Again, he appealed to the Father to let the cup pass from him. He pleaded with God. But then thirdly, he submitted to the will of God. Remember the words Jesus said at Gethsemane? He said, Father, if there can be any other way, let, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not, not my will, but your will be done. Do you see it? He, he submitted his will like he had always done. I mean, it was a regular habit of, of his to submit his will to the will of God. This wasn't something that he just, you know, dreamed up under pressure. It was a regular habit of his. What about you? Do you have that regular habit of submitting all of life to God? That's why we say around here, we want you to know Jesus and make all of life about Him. All of life about Him. Submit to the will of God. And then finally, He accomplished God's purpose. Are you aware that you can do that as well? Are you, are you aware that God has a purpose in your life that is unique and special do you know him well enough to know what his purpose is in your life? And are you willing, even through despair, even through pain, even through the dark night of the soul, your goal is to fulfill the purpose of God? <clears throat> That's what Jesus did. So, so I want to encourage us this morning to follow the example of the psalmist and follow the example of Jesus, because there is therapy in asking for help, help from God and help from those God puts in our life around us. So cry out to God when depressed. Secondly, in verses 10 through 12, we learn to cry out to God when facing discouragement. Cry out to God when facing discouragement. Look at verse 10. Do you work wonders for the dead? Did the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Now, pause there with me just for a minute. You feel the weight again of the psalmist here. It appears that the psalmist is just fixated on death. All he can think about is death. Again, I just picture that, you know, he's, he's standing almost imbalanced with a foot in the grave. And all he can think about is, is, is death. Look at his questions. In verse 10, he says, will you deliver the dead? Is your love declared in death? In other words, you know, he's, he's just fixated 
on death. Have, have you ever wondered what it feels like when you get under pressure, when you get in that dark night, that curtain falls on you? All you can think about is, you know, I just would be better off dead. I just, you know, maybe God would speak to me better from, from, from the grave. In verse 11, he says, Is your faithfulness declared in the realm of the dead? This word, Abaddon, it's a, it's, it's a word that appears only six times in the Masoretic text of the, of the Old Testament. It's a word that defines destruction. It's a place of destruction. It's the realm of the dead. And so again, over and over, he's just, he's just coming back to this idea of feeling the pressure of life you know, is the next thing to death. He's fixated on death. In verse 12, are your wonders declared in death or your works declared in death? So the point he's making here is, you know, and again, I'm asking you to open up your soul to the psalmist here, to enter into the pain that he's experiencing, maybe from the context of your own life, darkness and oblivion are all that he could think about as he thought about his life as compared to death. If you're like me, there have been times when you've been there as well. And I don't want to be a prophet of doom, (laughs) but most of us are going to be there again at some point in our life. So whether this pain was physical or emotional or both, which I believe it was for the psalmist here, his pain was real. And when you experience being, having the feeling of being cut off from life with nowhere to turn, circumstances around you are closing in on you and you just feel, you know, suffocated from, from life, that's a real feeling. And there has to be a response to that real feeling. One of God's greatest human Christian champions, in my opinion, was a man by the name born Saul of Tarsus. He was born in the same generation with Jesus, but he never actually met Jesus while Jesus was walking here on this earth in the flesh. In Acts chapter 9, we have a story about the transformation of Saul of Tarsus who became Paul the Apostle. In the first part of Acts chapter 9, Paul was on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus and he had that life-changing experience where in a bolt of light, Jesus met him face to face and Just like you and I have the opportunity to do, Jesus transformed his life. He changed his life. And after becoming a believer, this same man, Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, traveled around his known world and planted more churches than any person in history has planted since him. I mean, he was was a man who loved Jesus so much and had so much to make up for for the torture that he had applied to the lives of Christians in his earlier life. That he was on a mission to make sure the whole world heard about the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. He was the man who said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. 
Would it surprise you that this apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ chronically suffered? Chronically suffered. His own testimony in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. Listen to his testimony. These are the words of Paul. So to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now that's a prayer from the heart. Here's a man who suffers. Ask God to take the suffering away. God said no. I'm going to use that suffering to glorify my name. And Paul lived to glorify God. And I want to be transparent here because I'm trying to encourage us to be real with this psalm. There, there have been times in my life where, where I've been discouraged, severely discouraged. Uh, I know what it feels like to be weighed down with the burden of sin. There's nothing that discourages me any more than when sin is ruling in my life. And I want to be quick to confess that sin. But there have been times when that burden of sin has weighed me down to the point of discouragement. I know what it feels like to be deserted by really close friends. By what I thought were best friends. It hurts. It's discouraging when friends walk away and say things that are not true and leave me feeling depressed. I know what it feels like to have physical pain from injuries. And some of you, I'm looking at some of you who have been in the bed of affliction recently. You know what it feels like to be sick. To feel, is this the time? Is this it? Is this the end? I know what it feels like to be afflicted with, with pain. In 2020, I went through a short period of time where I had surgery on my foot. My, my hand was continuing to hurt. And today, I, I still can't use this outside part of my right hand. I have to do things with my left hand that naturally I'd really rather do with my, my right hand. I know what it feels like. To suffer from that kind of pain. Maybe not to the degree of the psalmist here, but it was real. And it hurt. It was discouraging. So along with the psalmist, as I read this psalm, I've, 
I've, I've learned from my personal experience as well as looking at Jesus and other people and especially this psalmist. It's a great thing to cry out to God in times of discouragement. Don't whitewash it. Don't lessen it. Admit it and just cry out to God in times of discouragement. Then finally, there's a third recommendation the psalmist makes for what to do when we want to cry out to God. Cry out to God when facing desertion. I've already mentioned this, but let's just go a little bit deeper here. In verse 13, he says, But I, O Lord, cry out to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? The psalmist felt deserted by God. He felt like God had abandoned him. And again, the more he cried out to God, the more he was frustrated. So why does God not answer this prayer? Why why does God not answer your prayer when you pray for comfort like the Apostle Paul was doing from a thorn in the flesh? Why does it feel like God had rejected the psalmist? Why does it feel like God maybe rejects you and abandons you at certain times? Well, the Bible is very clear about this. When we ask the question why, what we're really doing is just being human. But don't expect God to answer when we ask why. Most likely He's not. I, I see very few instances in Scripture where when somebody like the psalmist here said, Why God? Very, very few times does God answer the, the why question. A better question to ask is what? God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to teach me about myself? What are you trying to teach me about you? But why is just the human question to ask. In fact, when Jesus hung on the cross, dying for your sin and my sin, Jesus Himself, remember? He said, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? It's the human thing to do. Asking why means that you're simply human. And all of us have been there. And all of us will most likely be there again. So then the psalmist shares the integral part of his story, the personal part of his frustrating story. Look at verse 15. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. Let me say that again. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Now, I don't know how to overstate the the depth of the pain that the psalmist was feeling here. He said, I've been afflicted with suffering most of my life, and you see, God, that I'm helpless. And I have no power over my own suffering. Now, that's a reality of life, isn't it? That's a reality of life. 
Verse 16, he goes deeper. He says, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. Now, apparently here, the psalmist was feeling the weight of God's judgment. His affliction apparently was because of some sort of rebellion against God. And there's a principle for you and me here. A very solid principle. In verse 17, he says, the trials, they surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. So he's feeling this desperation. He's feeling, you know what it's like. Some of you, some of you actually experienced a flood in the last few years that came through the walls of your house and three or four or five feet of water built up inside your house and just destroyed everything. When, when a flood water comes in around you, it's hopeless. You're helpless. There's nothing you can do about that. It's coming and it's destructive and it's going to cause pain. So the psalmist acknowledged that these trials had totally surrounded him and that there was no way out. Great damage was being done. But here's the reality. Uh, in, the, in the superscript of this psalm, the psalmist identifies himself as an Ezraite. Now, this may be a little clue to what was going on in his life. You remember Ezra in... 605 B.C. was a priest in Israel, and all of the nobles, all the healthiest people from Israel were taken captive into Babylon, but Ezra was left behind. He was not taken into captivity. And it could be that he was looking around and under God's judgment. See, Ezra had done nothing to deserve this judgment. But anytime you and I sin against God, anytime we rebel against God, it not only affects our life, it affects everybody around us. And it could be that, that the writer of this psalm, this Ezraite, was feeling, you know, all of his friends had been taken away. There were no more there. The nobles had been taken away. He was left alone to experience the judgment that had fallen because of prior generations could be the case here that could be the the deepest source of of his pain but verse 18 says you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me my companions have become darkness so not only did he feel isolated and deserted by God he felt isolated and deserted from his friends that's sad to have no one in your life to give support in your darkest night of the soul. He felt deserted. He felt isolated from God and his friends. In the first quarter of next year, we're going to go look at the book of Ezra. We're going to spend couple of months looking at the details around what could have been the background to this psalm. But the bottom line is this. <clears throat> Cheap answers are no answers at all. Not helpful at all. Making uh, light of the pain in our life does not take away the pain. Masking pain solves nothing. However, the, the, the best place to start recovery 
in the midst of the darkest night of your soul is to cry out to God. That starts by knowing Jesus. That starts by accepting the friend that God has sent to your life and my life as a resource to be a friend, self-defined as a friend who is closer than a brother. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. And then it's even just as good to have other people around you that you can call into your life. Rick Warren says, revealing the feeling is the beginning of healing. And I agree with that. When you express to God, cry out to God, and then cry out to a a friend to come alongside you and help you. That's a step in being able to navigate the waters, the floodwaters of the deep, dark night of the soul. Now, I'm very thankful that most of you are not in this place of the psalmist today. Some of you may be. You may very well be. And, and some of you know better what it's like to even go in and out of, like Spurgeon of, of this kind of feeling in life. But if you're not there today, like I said, most likely you are going to be there at some point. Maybe soon in your life. So it's so important that right now today you draw the line of declaration and you draw the line that says, my trust is in God. The first two verses of this psalm are the most encouraging in all of the psalm. It doesn't end well. It doesn't end on an up note like many psalms do. But if, if you look at the first two verses of this psalm, the psalmist declares regardless of the battle that he's going on inside of his head and the physical battle that is going on in his life, in his body, he's going to keep calling on God. He's going to keep calling on God. And that's the encouragement that I see from this psalm today. First of all, make sure that you know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus when this kind of struggle comes down in your life, covers your life, you have no hope. There's nowhere to turn. So make sure you know Jesus. And then make sure that crying out to God is a way of life. Just like Jesus. Don't don't let it just be a SOS when the curtain falls. But if every day you're calling out to God as a way of life, in the morning, in the middle of the day, in the night, when you dream, if, if, if your focus is on calling out to God, then when that dark curtain does fall over your life, it's going to be automatic. It's going to be an automatic response to that, that, that struggle. Also, make sure that you're living moment by moment for God's glory. Living for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please Him in all that I do. Moment by moment, giving glory to God. It's a way that when the dark curtain falls, will guide you through it. Will guide you through it. Whether it guides you out of it or not, it will guide you through it. And then finally and ultimately, make praying for others. And make your life available to others to give encouragement to those who are in the dark night of the soul. We had a church member call me this week. Some of you need to hear this. 
church member called me this week and said, Pastor, please let some women know that I'm hurting, that I need somebody not to come here and tell me what to do, but to come here and just listen to me. Just listen to my heart. Listen to my story. Listen to my pain. Nothing needed from them except to show up. I'm so glad that we have a church. We have a church that is built on relationship. If you're a member of this church, I pray that your, your membership is based around people that you know, that you can call on in your dark night of the soul. Even better than that, I pray that you have a small group that you're a part of where you do life together. You do real life together. And when you enter into that dark night of the soul, you know that they're praying for you. You know they're supporting you. You know that they're there to to listen to your pain. I pray that you are experiencing that kind of relational experience with the family of God today. So in conclusion, if if you look at your worship guide, under the conclusion, it says preserve with unshakable faith in God. That should be persevere. Now, both ways it works because <laughs> if, if you're going through the dark night of the soul and you have somebody to cry out to, God and somebody else, it'll preserve you. But the idea there is that you persevere. You keep pushing through that tunnel of darkness knowing that crying out to God is a resource that you have that makes a difference. And reaching out to brothers and sisters in Christ gives you strength to take that next step, whether you feel like it or not, because no believer is immune to trials. So when you face trials and remain in despair... And you can't shake that deep spiritual discouragement. What do you do? Well, you cry out to God. You cry out to God. Father, I come to you this morning. In the name of Jesus. Thanking you once again that you are medicine to our souls. And God, the better we know you, the, the closer we walk with you, the, the better we have that personal, intimate relationship with Jesus as our personal Savior, our personal friend. The better we're able to navigate through the dark times of life. God, I thank you today that most of the people listening to this message or are not in that kind of dilemma today, but some are. And how I pray, God, that there would not be one single person who would close their eyes today before inviting Jesus to be the Savior and Lord of their life. God, we need you. Thank you that You are there and you do care. And even when we fall under the hand of your judgment, there's a purpose for that. 
And as you bring healing to us, we can give glory and praise to you. So thank you today, God, that we have victory in Jesus. We call on you today, again, to be that medicine that we need to our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.